Superstorm Sandy showed us all how easy it is to lose everything in an instant. Hundreds of people were left homeless from the storm, highlighting the need for more emergency housing in times of crisis. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're highlighting nonprofit organizations in the tri-state area that assist people with housing needs in various situations, not just catastrophes like Sandy. We'll talk with a Long Island organization that helps young mothers with nowhere to go, and another group that helps heart patients and their families with housing needs. But first, we turn our attention to the Jazz Foundation of America, an organization that provides emergency assistance to musicians. We're joined by Joseph Petroselli, the Associate Director of the Jazz Foundation. Joe, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. And Brooklyn-born musician, composer, band leader, and music educator, Bruce Mack. Bruce, thank you for coming in. You're welcome, and thank you for having me on. Joe, let's start with you. What is the mission of the Jazz Foundation of America? The Jazz Foundation is a nonprofit organization Uh, That was founded in 1989, and it's devoted to providing emergency assistance for musicians who are on hard times, whether due to old age, illness, or other circumstances. So we have a number of programs that provide housing, health care, gigs, financial assistance, and other services to musicians in need. How did this organization come into being? The organization, again, was founded in, in 1989 by... A group of individuals, including the trumpeter um, and educator Jimmy Owens, producer and songwriter Ann Ruckert, and a number of others, Jamil Nasser, a bass player, Dr. Billy Taylor. And this group of people came together because they were interested in somehow advancing the art form and promoting and promulgating and publicizing jazz. And after a few years, the vision and the mission really kind of materialized around this idea of providing emergency assistance to musicians and creating an emergency fund. And the founders of the organization asked, what is the single most important need for music and for the community? And this was to provide a resource, a sort of safety net of sorts for musicians who were on hard times because they had no savings or, or pension or insurance. Bruce, how does the Jazz Foundation factor into your life? Well, um, most recently, um, I've been a subject to <laughs> a, a severe storm, Sandy, and um, Jazz Foundation came, and I lost everything. I'm a teaching artist, actually, as well, and I collect a lot of instruments to take uh, to different schools and different regions where kids don't have as many instruments. And what happened was I had a lot of my stuff stored in a storage space that was directly across the street from where I was living in Staten Island near the harbor, and um, it flooded out and couldn't get my stuff to save it, so that was all lost. And then uh, my apartment, which had my studio and uh, additional instruments in there, was flooded subsequently right after. Um, So I lost everything. And the Jazz Foundation of America, um, being familiar with me and my work, uh, basically stepped in to assist me with uh, funding for um, housing as well as uh, a keyboard, something, an instrument to work with, which was kind of crucial. even though I don't have a place for it, it was uh, very helpful because as a musician, that's the kind of thing that kind of re- maintains some sanity, being able to play, being able to express yourself in ways that you know you may not be able to express. So where would you be today if it were not for the support of the Jazz Foundation? Um, well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm someone who's 
pretty self-sufficient. I try to survive on my own. But this has been the first time I actually felt, you know, a little unstable mentally, feeling like, wow, lost things can just be taken away from you and you have to think about it. And um, just to get a call from the Jazz Foundation of America to say, like, hey, we would like to help in some kind of way um, was very, very um, powerful and very helpful. So I don't know where I would be. I think I would be kind of a little, I think I'd try and make my way, but I think it wouldn't be as uh, easy. When not knowing that there's somebody there that's willing to help and support you, respects your, you as an artist, and so on. So I'd be a little little roaming around a little bit, trying to get it done, but roaming. <laughs> so Joe, what are you doing? Are you providing Bruce with financial assistance to pay for another place to live? Yes. Yeah. We we helped. We started by asking Bruce. I think what what is the single most important immediate need in terms of the lost property, not only the home but all of the the instruments, recording equipment, vintage recordings, and and we replaced this this keyboard which Bruce mentioned. And now the the next step is once Bruce finds the next place to move into will help with the security deposit first first month's rent. So you don't necessarily provide housing to musicians in need, you provide assistance to get housing. Exactly. We we have a, a housing fund which mostly pays rents and mortgages for people who have fallen behind or in some cases we have extraordinary circumstances like the hurricane and and we're helping there. So over the course of a year um, we we have about 500 instances or, or 10 instances a week of making a contribution to towards someone's rent or mortgage or you know something else pertaining to their to their housing needs we we don't have a residence per se it's one of the great long-term goals for the foundation are you working with a lot of musicians impacted by superstorm sandy we we are basically when the storm hit uh, which was on uh, Monday, um, we we started calling musicians around the region. So we have a, a contact list of about a thousand that we were reviewing um, and looking at who was affected in or in the affected areas, and and we just started making phone calls really to to check in and and like Bruce said, just to to let people know that that we were there. As early as Tuesday, the week of the storm, we. Our, our case managers, our social work staff, and really everyone who was available at the foundation, it's a, it's a small staff with about eight people in our New York headquarters, were, were visiting musicians um, that we could easily access, mostly in, in lower Manhattan. So we just kind of put together a list and, and went door to door. And in those situations, we were you know, visiting elderly musicians who were in buildings with no electricity, no phone, no elevator. These are musicians with respiratory problems, hip problems, back problems. And so um, just to deliver food and water and batteries and flashlights and, and some warm clothes was was extremely helpful. We were in touch with, with hundreds of, of musicians in the immediate aftermath of the storm to, to check in, and, and we've been helping dozens to, to date. Um, and we have some some of the extreme cases are these these tragic and tremendous losses of of instruments damaged and in the storm and destroyed in the storm and we have a number of situations like like Bruce's homes and studios just washed away. One of the problems that we faced after the storm was 
not only the the damage to personal property, but a, a lot of musicians lost work and they lost gigs. They couldn't. The clubs closed. They couldn't get into town or out of town for gigs, and we we try to help offset that in some way. If I may add on to that, one of the um, one of the joys I have experienced, and one of the reasons I became familiar with Jazz Foundation of America, uh, some of the fundraising events that have taken place, have, which have been some of the best gigs um, in town. For one, they would uh, take on a space and have a lot of folks who are affluent, uh, affluent in jazz, particularly. And you'd have uh, five, six rooms in this space, and everybody would be playing. They'd overlap a little bit. Those are some of the most fun times, and that's how, that's how I became familiar with Jazz Foundation of America. And it's an interesting uh, way of creating funds because here you have, you invite all of these artists for a nominal fee in terms of being paid to play for one another so we can raise funds for this um, for this, for these various causes that may take place, um, so you, we're all working and working on each other's behalf. It's a really fine, you know, system. I think, you know, and I'm really grateful um, for that. So you have these fundraisers, of course, Joe. All private donations. That's how your organization runs itself. We do. We 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 have two major events every year. One is a gala at the Apollo Theater in May. It's called a Great Night in Harlem. And then the other, which Bruce was describing, is called the Jazz Loft Party. And, and in that situation, we we rent out a uh, a group of lofts in a studio in Chelsea, and we have live bands performing simultaneously in three or four different places with this range of styles. And, and yes, these are ticketed events and sponsored events. And our organization does receive some uh, federal funding, public funding, but, but that's a smaller percentage of um, our annual revenue, which is the vast majority of which is, is privately funded. Bruce, do you find inspiration in these instances, in these times of need, <laughs> I'm laughing because um, I've been uh, several folk and I, that I know, friends who have mentioned to me that, hey, this is an opportunity to write a song, and you know it's 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 funny. I, I believe that, and there are moments where you know I may be sitting down at uh, having a glass of wine at, at dinner. Um, lately, I've had a lot of dinners alone. <laughs> it's been <laughs> funny because it's hard to, you know, kind of coordinate events with people, so on and so on, when you're trying to find a place to live. But I've had a drink, and then I'll have like, okay, here's a moment. I'm thinking about this, and I can write it down. But generally, you have to. it seems like you have to go through the experience for the most part and then reflect on it. Where are you living right now? Um, I'm living – I've been living in hotels since uh, the end of the holiday season, prior to the holiday – as the holiday season took uh, place, a lot of the parents at the school I teach, PS3 in the West Village, uh, have offered me spaces. Some of them went away for holidays, and I had their space to, to hang out in. After the holidays, uh, uh, another organization, uh, FEMA – uh, put me up in hotels. So I've been in hotels since. Long term, what are your plans? What uh, do you long do? Term, um, long term is to, right now I'm looking for a place. I'm not just staying in the place. I'm spending a lot of time searching for an apartment. Um, right now I'm in a commitment with uh, a broker. Hopefully they'll okay it. Uh, definitely it's not a fun thing. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, thuggery out there, you know, and people have to be aware and looking for apartments. And uh, when you get help, uh, consider getting uh, additional help with uh, people who are, who are aware of what's going on. Because there are people, uh, you know, that are out there really just who are uh, guised as or disguised as really companies or, mm -hmm. or broke or realty companies, but have strange policies that are uh, not clear. Um, and they take money. Basically, they flat out take money from people. 
Joe, in addition to helping with the finances, do you help musicians find that place to live and to navigate those rental agreements? Sure. We we have housing experts. We have pro bono lawyers who specialize in housing. So, and and we do have uh, case managers who will participate in the in the search for. A, a residence. I just want to express my gratitude, Jazz Foundation of America. I think it's a really cool thing, and all the other organizations that are out there kind of partnering to make things a little bit easier. To know that there's uh, foundations and organizations that are doing things outside, you know, beside the government and so on, there's a, it makes it feel like there's a real community. So thank you. Joe, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Bruce, thank you. You're very welcome, and thank you. Joe Petroselli is the Associate Director of the Jazz Foundation of America. Bruce Mack is a Brooklyn-born musician who lost everything during Superstorm Sandy. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're showcasing nonprofit organizations that assist people with housing during times of need. Mama's House on Long Island provides housing for young mothers and their babies and has been doing so for 25 years. With us on the phone now is Mama herself, Executive Director Pat Shea. Pat, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for asking me. What is Mama's House? What's the purpose there? Mama's House is a residential program for young women between the ages of 17 and 24 who are either pregnant and, and or parenting and are homeless. Our mission is to get them from dependency to independency. What can you tell me about the women who come to Mama's House? Why are they in need? They're in need because when they announce their pregnancy or subsequent pregnancy, they have reached the end of the rope with the people that they were staying with. Usually that means that they're going to become homeless if they have this baby. So our response to that is to give them the option of having a place to live and to have their child. And I think that um, because economic situations are so bad now, many families can't absorb another mouth to feed, and therefore they tell these girls, well, you know, you've made this decision, now you have to leave. And sometimes they were in forced to care and really never lived with their families, or sometimes they were living with the father of the baby, and he put them out, and sometimes they're just evicted from the premises because of non-payment of rent, usually due to the fact that they don't have income. How challenging is it for these women? What kinds of stories do you hear from them? Well, many of them are frightened, very frightened. You know, what's going to happen next? Because sometimes it's the first time they've ever been in this situation, and they've always had the support of other people, whatever, how limited it might have been. They've always counted on that, and now they don't have the support of anybody. So it's a big step for them, and it's also pretty courageous of them to just choose to come into a residence to go through their pregnancy and have their baby. And also, many of them have suffered from a lot of abuse. Some of them have been sexually or physically or emotionally abused for many, many years. And we need to rebuild them, you know, to give them self-esteem and to show that they're people of worth and dignity. How do you do that? Well, it's a constant source of challenge. Mainly, we try to do it by allowing them to have some successes in life, which means that we start with trying to finish their education for them. Because if they can get their high school diploma or GED, they are so proud of that, and we are so proud of them when they accomplish that, that it's an ego boost and starts to put them into position to be able to become employed. Another thing, uh, we have workshops all the time on self-esteem and their body image and their physical image. We have um, a, a program on dress for success. We have a program on doing resumes and transcripts, all to make them feel good about themselves and to show the world that they're 
doing well, you know, that they're going in the right direction. And I, I think also we need to love them. If we haven't loved them, then they will not feel lovable. And once you don't love yourself, you never see a good time ahead. You always see depression and, and disaster sometimes. So providing a roof over their heads is one part of the equation, but only one part of the equation. Right, exactly. If, you, if all they needed was a roof over their head, they could stay anywhere. They could rent anywhere, but they need so much more than that. I used to take these girls into my own home, and uh, I know that it's not just a roof over their head. I know it's way more than that that they need. And I, and I think that once we give them that support and that encouragement and the opportunities, uh, they will be successful people. How do they find out about you? Well, I, apparently they don't have too much trouble finding about, about us. Yeah, we get a lot of referrals from different agencies that are working with that population, also from hospitals and social workers that are in different uh, fields of, in the, you know, in the areas of social work. We also get a lot of referrals from prior residents, you know, who will tell somebody you really have to go there. You'll get help. And also by family and friends who know about us. So it's um, a lot of different ways. We always have a waiting list. There's always girls, more girls applying than we can afford to, uh, you know, and we don't have the space for. But we always keep them on this list in case there is an opening and they can come in right away then. How many beds do you have? We have 17 families that we take care of. So and that's mother and child, so it's about 34. And you're based where? Our main office is in Wantor, but our houses are throughout Nassau County. So do most of the women come from Long Island, or do you accept women from outside of Long Island as well? We accept women from outside of Long Island. We, we've taken many young women from Covenant House in the city uh, because they you know, have no, no resources in the city. It's very hard to find affordable housing. So they gravitate to come out here. Maybe they've had a past life experience out here. You know, maybe they lived with family out here at one time. How long can they stay with you? Two years. And during the two years, we have a real opportunity to change their lives if they choose to do that. Because when we used to, when we started, it, we didn't have that kind of a long-term commitment to them. We didn't think that they needed that. But as time came along and we saw the progress that people who stayed longer, what they achieved as opposed to those who left after a short period of time, we decided to extend the program to two years. And, and it's pretty unique. There's not, I don't know if there's any other program that will offer a two-year residency. So you're caring for these moms and you're really also caring for their children at the same time. Absolutely. We do um, early intervention. We call in on all of the young babies that are born just to make sure that they're going to be developmentally progressing in the way that they should be. We also teach the parents how to parent. Many of them have never had good parenting role models, so they don't know how to parent. And unfortunately, that causes problems with their baby and the child's growth and development there needs to be a stimulating environment, so we, we have daycare on site at every one of our homes, and in that daycare room are all the things that you would need to work with a child to learn how to read, to count, to identify their colors, all the things that parents normally teach their children to do. A lot of our young mothers have never had that kind of parenting, so with the help of the daycare staff and the other staff that's on 24-7, they learn how to parent, and they do much better when they've had that kind of environment. How much responsibility do you give them? Do they have a set list of chores and that kind of thing? Yes. When they, when they apply for admission, they're given a sort of a contract, which is like an agreement between uh, the, the girl and her children and us. 
and it explains exactly what our expectations are. And one of the expectations is that they have a chore every day, and once a week they cook for the entire house. They do the shopping with the house manager. They learn all the different skills that you need to run a household. If you know, we have these workshops. We also have role modeling. We also have people come in and teach how to shop, how to cook, how to keep a budget, how to write a check. So all of these things are preparations for independent living. So all of the chores that are assigned are assigned for not only keeping the house up, but also for teaching them the skills that they need to move on. Now, Mama's House has been around for 25 years. How did it come into being? Well, as I said earlier, she these girls used to live with me. And um, as a result of their living with me, I knew that many of them had mental health issues, addiction problems, problems with things that are much greater than just a house could accommodate. We needed a program. So how did that come together? How did these girls come to live with you, Pat? Well, I was the director of Birthright, and we used to take mothers in who were homeless. And I did that for about 10 years till I ran out of space because I have five children of my own. Hmm. And so we had to find other houses that would take these girls in. And then as time went on, we knew that we needed to do more for them than just that. So uh, the girls that originally came to me were people that were referred by friends or relatives or agencies or outreach programs from different churches and temples. <clears throat> so I, I'd take them in and care for them as long as they needed it. So you're and a mama. I, I am. <laughs> All the way around. Yeah, did someone give you that name? No, we, we made it up. We just wanted to get across the idea of a comforting environment, not just you know, saying some institution name, we wanted it to be something that's welcoming. So it's easier to say I'm going to Mama's than it's to go to some other institution. Pat, let me ask you, do you find yourself having to defend yourself at times from people who say, you know what, these women got themselves into this situation and they shouldn't be getting a handout, they shouldn't be getting this kind of assistance? Oh, yes. There's people that are saying, you know, the that, you know, this is something that they, this is their bed, now they have to lie in it type pro- program, approach. But I say there, but for the grace of God, go on. If, if you didn't have someone in your life that would give you the love and support you needed, where would you be today? So my concern is that we're not here to judge anybody. We're here to help anybody that's staggering and needs assistance, help people to stand up, not to keep putting them down. And I think that in the end, the person that's built up and becomes a contributing member of our society adds to the culture in which we live. Instead of making them antisocial with your rejection and judgment, how about trying to make an effort to accept them and guide them and give them help along the way? I see that these, every one of these girls has a gift. It's just that they don't recognize it, and they need to see, have, be around people who say, You know, you've got a great sense of humor. You're a good mother. You always take the time to do the right thing. You don't lose your patience all the time. You know, just keep saying the things that are building up the strength of that individual. And I I just think that if we were more a a loving and supportive group and environment within which they could live, we wouldn't be tossing these people aside and having to deal with their acting out behavior at a future date. Where do you get the money to operate, Mm. Pat? That's a big question. <laughs> we have to write grants all the time. We run fundraisers. We depend heavily on donors who, who have been very supportive of us over the years. But every year, the expenses get greater and greater, and there's less and less sources of funding. So this last year was probably the most difficult year we've ever had. People who would ordinarily give weren't able to give, and 
we didn't have enough money to run the kind of fundraising that we needed to have to raise the rest of the money. So it becomes more and more difficult as time goes on, but I'm determined to make this work. So we'll find ways, and we'll just hope and pray that uh, uh, even just a show like yours that could reach out to people that might be interested in helping us, they would come and want to find out more about us and how they can help. No offer of assistance, too large or small. No way. Anything that you're willing to give, we'll find a way of using it. Pat, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Pat Shea is the executive director of Mama's House, based in Wantaw, Long Island. Harboring Hearts in Manhattan also provides housing assistance to people in need. They provide help to heart patients and their families. Co-founder and CEO Michelle Javian joins us now on the phone. Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, George, for having me on the show. What is the mission of Harboring Hearts? When my father was hospitalized after a heart attack um, here in New York City, we noticed that many families of other cardiac patients do not have a place to stay, and they would literally sleep in hospital waiting rooms. They brought meals, like, you know, to their family. They were very unhealthy. They were literally showering at other people's apartments. And I approached Yuki Kitani, the other co-founder of Harboring Cart, and we recognized these families would need support, both financial and emotional support. So the mission of Harboring Heart is to provide heart patients and their families with the support through a home-like haven and a nurturing community of resources. So this organization was founded on personal experience. Yes, it was. So what kinds of services do you provide specifically? We find families temporary and short-term housing near the hospitals in New York City so they can be near their loved ones while they're receiving treatment. And we provide mortgage and emergency grants to these families that are in need. Our emergency funds also help them with travel and transportation costs, and they connect them with child care and many other needs. How many people are you helping at any one given point in time? Well, yesterday at our community event, we helped over 500 families and patients. But on a day-to-day basis, we tend to help around three or four families a month, and we hope to provide over, um, well, almost close to $100,000 towards these emergency grants in 2013. Where do you find the temporary or permanent housing for these folks? We have worked with other organizations, such as the Ron McDonald House, and we've partnered with them since we don't have our own housing facility. We've worked with the Ron McDonald House, and we have an agreement with them where we help provide financial assistance to their organizations so our families can stay there. We've also worked with other companies um, such as like hotel groups and chains. One example that I would love to share with you all, after Hurricane Sandy, we had many opportunities to help families affected by the disaster. And one family in particular, a single mother with three children, and herself, is at, she's actually in treatment currently for cancer. Plus, her son is undergoing continual cardiac treatment at Mount Sinai Hospital. They lived in New Jersey, closer to Philadelphia. And after Sandy, their home was flooded and unavailable for several months. And they had to stay in a shelter. They stayed with friends and family. Um, their health was just deteriorating. And as you can imagine, their situation, their medical and home costs were rising. And the mother was unable to work during this time because of the storm and her deteriorating health. And after hearing their story, we immediately knew that Harboring Hearts had to help them. 
So we provided them with the housing grant, which helped Jackie and her family to keep their home and lessen their financial burden. And we featured them um, on our website at harboringheart.org under who we help. So if anyone's interested in learning more about their story and how we helped them, they can check it, us out there. There are some pretty emotional stories on there to read. I was reading through them. Some families travel from across the country to get help here in New York, and you help them while they're here. That is correct, yes. There's been a few that have, and we haven't featured all of them yet on our website, but that have traveled from even Trinidad or the West Coast to come to New York City for their care. How do folks find out about you? We mainly work with the social workers at these different hospitals in New York, such as Mount Sinai, Montefiore, New York Presbyterian Hospital. So if anyone needs our help or assistance, they can find out, like speak to their social worker and have their social worker reach out to us directly. How can anyone get involved with your organization, Michelle, people who want to volunteer and help out? For anyone who's interested to volunteer, they can look on our homepage um, under Get Involved. And our URL is www.harboringheart.org, H-A-R-B-O-R-I-N-G, heart, H-E-A-R-T-S, dot org. Michelle, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, George, so much for your help and support. Michelle Javian is a co-founder and the CEO of Harboring Hearts Foundation, one of many New York area organizations that provide housing for people in need. For more information on the organizations on today's show and how you can get involved, go to wfuv.org slash cityscape. And for more information on WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit wfuv.org slash strike accord. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.